Thank you, Sam, for filling in this morning for me so that I could devote myself to the preaching of God's Word. It makes for a busy day when you have to do both of those things. So, brother, I'm grateful, grateful for you. This past week, Pastor Lewis, Pastor Travis, myself, and uh, nine other messengers, as they call them at the Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, had the privilege to go to Anaheim, California, and represent us there as messengers at the annual meeting. Um, And so we look forward to reporting back to you a little bit about what took place there and sharing that with you soon. Pastor Lewis left for Europe today with his family, and then they'll be back in a couple weeks just in time for us to leave the next day for Utah and then be back after that. So we look forward to the Richardsons joining us back here in uh, Baton Rouge on July 11th. That's when we can see them again. So once he returns, I know we'll plan to give you a report of what took place this past week. But in the meantime, if you need to know what happened before then, Dirk Crone uh, said he would be glad to share with you about the week. So Dirk Crone, raise your hand there. There he is. See that brother. If you want to know about this past week, he'll be glad to fill you in. Well, today we continue in the Psalms, our summer in the Psalms. Today we're going to be in Psalm 50. This summer, collectively, we'll be looking at Psalms 49 through 60. And so if your math is good, you'll have figured out that this is our second Sunday in the Psalms as we look at Psalm 50. Now, it was several months ago that Pastor Lewis asked me if I'd be up for preaching this psalm. And I don't know at the time if he realized how rich the implications are in this psalm as regards worship. And uh, worship just happens to be something I like, something I like to talk about, something I like to preach on and, and teach, and most importantly, participate in. And so today, as we look at Psalm 50, we're going to learn much about the worship of God's people. But I want to encourage you with a few introspective questions. Just as we get started in this psalm today, I want you just to think to yourself a minute about your own worship as you gather with the people of God. It's really easy. We're all guilty of this sometimes. Uh, no, one is, uh, no one is safe from having fallen into, fall into the temptation of showing up for worship and just going through motions. You sing the songs, you follow along as the scriptures are read, you bow your head when the prayers are being given, you sit quietly and listen to preaching, and so on. It's so easy, especially for those of us who have been believers and have been worshiping for so long, to approach that and become completely disengaged with our minds as we go through that. Or it's possible that as we engage in worship, not only are we disengaging our mind, perhaps we see the wrong purpose, the wrong motivation behind our worship. Both of these things are addressed in our text today. But thirdly, it's also often said of us, often seen of us, often in our hearts, that we're living in sin. We're sinful people by nature. No one of us in here is is safe from ever sinning. We would love for that to be the case, and hopefully we are becoming sanctified in our lives as we love Christ, we obey his word, we become more like him. But for some, we can live lifestyles of sin that cause our worship when we gather together to be hypocritical. And we don't want that either. Our text also addresses this today. So as we look at our text in Psalm 50, it's organized in this way. We have three simple stanzas. Now, I do want to encourage you not to confuse stanzas with verses. So when you look in your hymnal and you, you see a stanza and you see a verse, a verse is not the same as the stanza. No song just has four verses or three verses but it might have three stanzas or four stanzas. And each of those stanzas is made up of multiple verses. And so today in our Psalm, Psalm 50, we see a hymn, a psalm, a song with three stanzas. In the first stanza, God is assembling court. He's ready to have a trial. He's ready to exact judgment upon someone. And so in that first stanza, we see the trial being assembled. 
And then in the second stanza, the second stanza picks up at verse 7 and goes through verses 15. In this second stanza, we see the first charge that God has, the first indictment against his people. And then in the third stanza, the third and final stanza, verses 16 to 23, 16 through the end of the psalm, we see a second charge that God has for his people, a second indictment. And from these three stanzas, here's what I want to walk away with us learning today. Because of and through Christ, God calls us to turn away from vain, pagan, hypocritical worship and offer him a sacrifice of thanksgiving as our worship as we walk in obedience. Did you get all that? Here it is again. Because of and through Christ, God calls us to turn away from vain, pagan, hypocritical worship and offer him a sacrifice of thanksgiving as our worship as we walk in obedience. As we start to unpack this truth that we want to identify in our text today, let's begin with the first stanza. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. The thing we see here at the very beginning of this stanza is the psalmist Asaph. By the way, Asaph would have been the chief musician for David. If it wasn't Asaph exactly, it was most likely someone in his line, in his family, or in his guild. The chief musician of the sanctuary music underneath David. And so here, he introduces the mighty one, God, Yahweh. Your Bible may say the Lord. So these three titles for God introduce the authority with whom the one who is speaking here has to gather together his people. So God is indeed the highest authority. And what does he do? He summons all of the inhabitants of the earth. Notice here, he says, he speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. The importance in the rising of the sun to its setting is geographical in nature. Where does the sun rise? The east. Where does the sun set? The west. What is not covered underneath the sun's rising and the sun's setting? All is covered. And so here, God is making it plain that he is summoning together all of the inhabitants of the earth. Here he says, In verse 2, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. What do we learn from that? The perfection of beauty, out of Zion, God shining forth. What we see is illumination. As God shines forth, there is nothing that is hidden from God's light. Everything is brought to light. Everything can be seen. Nothing can be hidden from God. So what we see here in his beauty shining forth is illumination on all things. And that's very important because God is about to judge his people. And so he shines a light on them so that all can be seen and that he might judge justly and fairly. Listen to what it says next. Verse 3, our God comes, he does not keep Silence. This is important as well. 
as God shines light on all things, as things are illuminated, as things have become seen, it is also worth noting that God will not be able to remain silent. He will indeed judge one way or the other. He will not keep silence. And look what goes before him and what's around him. Before him is a devouring fire. And around him is a mighty tempest. This idea of God having a devouring fire go before him communicates that following his judgment, for he will not be able to keep silence, he is prepared to exact that judgment through a devouring fire and through a mighty tempest. This idea of an all-consuming judgment should be familiar to us, especially if we know Leviticus 10, 1 through 2, and what happened with Nadab and Abihu. I'm going to read these words to you. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Here in Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, we see God's consuming fire exact judgment against those who have sinned against God. In this case, they worshiped in a way that God had not commanded them in his word. Here in Psalm 50, verse 3, this warning comes again in the same way. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. As we're going to be talking about worship a little bit today in this psalm, as that's the, the thrust of the psalm, I do want to, to say it's, I find it very interesting when, um, when I, someone told me about a song recently, and it was, it was the song was people, it's a contemporary worship song, and the people were singing for God to consume them with his fire. I don't think, there's a meme about this, I don't think they know what that means. To ask God to consume you is not something you'd want to do. Now, they may have in their minds God's refining fire. But even then, we don't want God's refining fire either. God's refining fire, refining fire is for the dross to be burned so that the gold that is left behind might be refined. It is not us that is, we want to be consumed, but the dross that keeps us from being pure. And so here, God's devouring fire, his consuming fire, is going to consume that which is among us that keeps us from being pure. We ought not ask God to consume us, but rather to consume the dross that causes us as a people to be impure. This is the idea here as well. God wants a pure people, and he's willing to consume that which is impure within his people that his people might be pure. I'm reminded also of Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. We have great motivation to offer God acceptable worship. Worship that is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, not what the people of Israel happen to be doing much of the time. Look at this idea of mighty tempest here in verse 3. So after, not only is there a devouring fire before him, but there's a mighty tempest around him, also willing to exact his judgment. This mighty tempest communicates God's, God's, God's intent towards sin, what he feels towards sin. It's, he has anger towards sin. This mighty tempest communicates his anger towards sin. And what does he do in verse 4? He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So God has summoned everyone together. He's assembled court. Now he's declaring who will be witness. Who will be the witnesses? He calls to the heavens above and to the earth. And who will be the defendant to, that he may judge his people? So now we know who's calling the court together. We know who the witnesses are. We know who the defendants are. 
And so here he says in verse 5, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God's people are his faithful ones. They've entered into a relationship with God through sacrifice. Nothing they've earned on their own, not a sacrifice that they have created, but a sacrifice on God's behalf, that his people might be united with him. And so now he is ready to judge his people, his faithful ones who have entered into a covenant with him. And do we think that this trial will go fairly? Do we think that the result will be the right result? Well, if we had any doubt, verse 6 clears that up. The heavens declare his righteousness. For God himself is judge. Now we have all of the characters here in our trial. The witnesses from heaven, the inhabitants of heaven and earth, the defendants being the faithful of God, his people, the judge being God himself. And now that God has assembled the court, he is ready to bring against his people the first charge which we find in stanza number two, beginning in verse seven. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble." I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So what we have here in this stanza, this first charge against the people, is a charge for their vain pagan worship. God doesn't desire vain pagan worship, which I'll explain in a minute, the pagan idea of this worship. What he desires, as he has said here in verse 14, is a sacrifice of thanksgiving, which is much different from an offering of vanity, an offering such as what pagan gods would have been offered. Here in verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. He's not simply saying, hey, listen to me as, so that I might have an audience for what I want to say. No, what he's saying is, listen to me, and I expect a response from you. It's very much like this. In your own home, you might be a father or you might be a mother and you might be speaking to your child and you might say something along the lines of, listen to me. Well, any child in here knows that not only should we listen with our ears, we should also do whatever we're being told, right? This is the same idea here. God is saying, hear, O my people, and I will speak. In other words, he's about to tell them the charge, and he expects a response, a response like what we see in verse 14 and verse 15. And also, not only is he judge, he is also the one testifying against his people. Here he says, O Israel, I will testify against you. How can God, the judge, be the one who also testifies. And how can he testify against these people? Well, he makes it clear in the last part of verse 7, because I am God, your God. He can call his people to listen. He can speak to them. They must be obedient. He can judge them if they're not. Why? Because he is their God. And then in verse 8, he begins the first charge, the first indictment against his people. The first thing he says here is, it's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. This is really important to notice. So are they worshiping in a right way externally? Yes, they're doing everything to the letter, everything to the T. 
They're doing the sacrifices properly. They're getting the right animals for the sacrifice. They're doing it the way he wants externally. But that's not the problem, is it? If it's not the problem with the way they're doing the offerings and sacrifices and all of their worship externally, then it must be a problem with something internal, something within their own hearts. And as he continues, he reveals that to us. Look what he says here in verses 9, 10, all the way through 13. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? What we learn here is a little picture of what that vain pagan worship looked like. They were doing everything they should have on the outside, but internally, their worship was empty. Thus, it was vain. Their hearts didn't align with the motivation of thanksgiving that God wanted out of worship. What the people were doing instead was worshiping in the same way that their pagan neighbors were worshiping. What's the difference in in pagan worship and biblical worship? The difference is appeasement versus thanksgiving. And so what the people were doing was sacrificing bulls in all going through everything they were supposed to do in order to appease God, as if he needed something. But look what God says in verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. Is it true that they should sacrifice those things in worship? Yes. So why wouldn't he accept them? because they were trying to offer them as appeasement. He has no need of them, why? Because they are his. He said later in verse 12, the world and its fullness are mine. How dare we turn around and think that we can offer to God something that's already his as some sort of appeasement or payment. It reminds me of Psalm 24, one. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He continues this idea of appeasement in in verse number two, stanza number two, sorry, I confused stanzas and verses there. Stanza number two in verse nine. So he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. You can't turn around and offer to me as a payment something that already belongs to me. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Why? Why wouldn't he tell us? Because we don't feed God. That's not what we're doing in worship. We're not feeding some kind of need he has in himself. So he says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. We cannot provide food for him. By the way, he's never hungry. He has no need. And he says, for the world and its fullness are mine. He continues the idea of how preposterous it is for us to turn around and try to feed God. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Of course not. And so God in verses 14 and 15 offers a corrective to these, this idea of pagan worship. And so it's a very pagan idea to think that we can appease God in worship, that we need to feed him, that we need to make sacrifices in order to to get him to do what we want him to do. That's not how God works. That's how the pagans think that their fake gods work. But our God does not work that way. Consider these words in Acts 17. Acts 17, 22 through 25. This should be a familiar encounter to you. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What we learned here is exactly the opposite of what the people were thinking. They were thinking they could feed God when they're the ones who are the ones in need. They have the great need, not God. And so God turns it around on them and says in verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Because God has provided for them. They have not provided for him, but he has provided for them. Therefore, their worship should be characterized by thanksgiving. Here he says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. What are these vows? These vows are us promising praise to God for what he has already done for us. It's not a bargaining. It's not saying, hey, God, if you do this, I vow to do this. No, no, no. It's God, because you will perform these deeds, and we know that you have, we will respond in praise. It's confidence in God, not a bargaining chip. And as we think of the idea of responding in thankfulness, I'd like to turn your attention to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And I need your help on this one. I'm going to pause along the way, and if you can just fill in that one word as I pause, that would be really helpful. It's a really hard word for me. I can't read it very well, so you could help me out in this way. Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be... Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving to God the Father through him. Here we see in a short passage that talks about the corporate worship of the people. We know this because of the teaching of the word, the singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We know that the context is the corporate worship of God's people. What what is supposed to characterize their worship throughout this passage? Thankfulness. And so as we turn our attention back to Psalm 50, verse 14, and we see this corrective to their empty pagan worship of offering God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, we can relate through the writer of Colossians 3 as well. And listen to verse 15 as we close out this second stanza. If God is going to call us to offer him a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as opposed to a sacrifice of appeasement somehow, if he's going to do that, then surely he will show us what it is that we have thanks for. And he does indeed. Verse 15 And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So God is giving his people reason to respond in worship that is characterized by thankfulness. He will deliver his people. And what does it say next? And you shall glorify me. That is the vow of praise that we offer to God because of what he does on our behalf. Notice it doesn't say, hey, if you glorify me, I will deliver you. No, our worship of God is a response to what God has already done. And so here, God delivers his people. He delivers us, and we respond by glorifying God in worship. It's really important for us at this moment to consider what has God done for us that we might desire to offer him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We have a much clearer picture of what God has done for us than the people writing this psalm had at that time. For what have we seen? We have seen Jesus. 
How have we seen Jesus? We've seen him in God's word. What do we know about Jesus? We know that Jesus, God's son, came, dwelt among us, lived a perfect, sinless life. Why? So that he might give his life for us. We understand that we are sinners. And left in our sin, what do we deserve? We deserve the devouring fire of God we've already spoken about. But God saw fit to send us his son to deliver us from that judgment if we would but trust in him. By the way, we don't have to appease Christ. We don't have to do anything for God to get salvation. We don't earn it. But does that mean we have to rightly respond to it? Of course, we respond in thanksgiving. This morning, church, those of you who have trusted in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross, him buried, him risen, I implore you, respond to God in all things with thanksgiving. In verse, in Hebrews 13, 15, you don't have to turn there, but in Hebrews 13, 15, it says, through him, who is the him? It's Jesus. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And so as we acknowledge Christ's name, as we offer him this sacrifice of praise, we don't earn salvation. We thank God for the salvation he's already given us. And that thanksgiving in our hearts as we worship him also has implications for the way we live our lives. For our lives will be different if we've trusted in Christ. If we have hearts of thankfulness, we live differently. And this is what stanza number three gets at. Stanza number three begins in verse 15. Sorry, 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. It's interesting as, as the psalmist in recounting this judgment, this charge from God, how closely aligned these two charges are. What was the first charge? It was a charge for vain pagan worship. It should be no surprise then that a people who are worshiping vainly and in a pagan way would in turn lead to sinfulness in their own lives. Hypocritical worship because of the sin that they live out. At the same time, it's understandable that those who live sinful lives but still attempt to worship God are going to also fall into the trap of vain pagan worship. These two things go hand in hand with one leading to the other, an endless cycle, unless we adhere to the words of God to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving and to walk rightly with God as God shows us here in this third stanza. To the wicked, what does he say? What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? Imagine, imagine someone coming before God in attempting to do all the right things externally, worshiping him in, in action, in deed, all the right sacrifices, but the entire time they live lives of sinfulness. Think about your own life for, for a moment. How would it appear to God for you to come 
on Sunday morning, gather with God's people, sing the songs, read the scriptures, say the prayers, and your life is characterized by nothing but sinfulness all week. How much is your worship actually doing on a Sunday morning? God doesn't want hypocritical worship. He wants worship on Sunday. That's an overflow of our worship throughout the week. And the same, he wants worship throughout the week in our private lives that overflows from our corporate worship on Sundays. It can't be characterized by sinfulness or our worship is hypocritical. How dare we take the name of the Lord upon our lips if we live sinful lives? Listen to what God says in verse 17. For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. Are these people who don't know the word of God? No, these people know the word of God well. They know everything that they are to do and how they are supposed to do it. They know the word of the Lord, but they hate discipline. They hate the instruction of God's word. What do they do with that instruction? They cast it behind them and proceed on without it. And in here, the psalmist outlines three specific ways in which people do that. But before we look at those, there's one in the first part of 18, a second in the second part of 18, and then a third one in 19 and 20. I think it's very important to understand why more words are devoted to that third one. The first one, I point your attention to Romans 2. Romans 2, 17 through 24, as we consider the hypocrisy of God's people. Here Paul is saying to the Jews gathered, he says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boasting God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law and if you are sure that yourself, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, they know a lot. They know a lot. But listen to what happens next. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The people of God seem to not be able to get away from their own hypocrisy. And God, over and over, offers them a correction to this. Here is what God has said in verse 18. These three violations as they reject the Lord in his word. Verse 18, A, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. They are pleased with thieves. Does that mean they're thieves themselves? Perhaps, but they don't have to necessarily be thieves themselves. They are pleased with them. They see what they do and they do nothing. They are complicit in thievery. 18B, and you keep company with adulterers. Again, does this mean that the people of God were themselves committing adultery? Perhaps not. It doesn't matter. They were keeping company with them, encouraging the behavior, and again, becoming complicit in that behavior of adultery. And then thirdly, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. The longest charge here of sin is given to the way they use their mouths. They are deceitful people. But look who they're deceitful against. Their own brother. Brothers and sisters in this room, may it not be said of us that we are complicit with thieves and adulterers or that we would be deceitful with our own mouths towards one another. In so doing, God is is revealing to them three specific commands that we know from the Ten Commandments. What's interesting is what the second stanza, this first charge against God's people, hit on. It hit on their own worship towards God, right? 
And so as we consider the Ten Commandments, the first four of those commandments deal with who? Our relationship with God. And then commandments five through ten deal with our relationship with who? Each other, other people. And so here, these two charges do likewise. The first charge in stanza two, sin that the people had against God because of their vain, their vain pagan worship, that was an offense against God. And now they continue to worship in hypocrisy as they have offense against one another, participating in thievery and adultery and deceitfulness. And so listen to what God says in verse 21. These things you have done, and I have been silent. What does God's silence mean as the people have done this? Does it mean that God approves of what they're doing? This seems to be what the people understood. They think, oh, God is silent. He's accepting of our sinfulness. And so let's continue in that sin. But no. He says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself. You thought that I was like yourself. We see this in two ways in this psalm. We saw it earlier as they thought that God was someone that needed feeding that someone who needed to be fed so that they might benefit from that relationship. They thought that he, they could appease them. Why? Because they thought that God was like themselves, one who was hungry, one who had need, but he was not. And here again, they thought that God was one like themselves, one who was silent and therefore accepting of their sin. But was that true? No, God was not accepting. God was patient. God's silence was a demonstration of his patience for his people, not his acceptance of their sin. And so what does he say now? Does he remain silent? No. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. He has laid the charge before his people. He has pointed out to them their vain, pagan, hypocritical worship. Now he has laid out the charge. The charge is that of a devouring fire in a mighty tempest. And what does the devouring fire in a mighty tempest do? Verse 22, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there, and there be none to deliver. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. God's judgment against those who continue in this sin will be complete destruction. Let me repeat that. Complete destruction, not refinement. This is not a burning away of sin in their life that they may be pure. This is a burning away of those people who are making the people of God as a whole impure. And so God will destroy them to the point that there'd be none to deliver. At this point, it should cause you to kind of wonder, maybe for a moment, so if I didn't worship God correctly today, if I was coming before God continually with vain worship, worshiping as a pagan, worshiping with hypocrisy as I live a life of sin, will God send a fire and consume me right where I sit? Well, brother and sister, that's not how it works the impurities will be done away with at one point, And we will be made a pure people at one point as well. And that point will be at Christ's return. When Christ returns, he will purify his people. We won't see that purification now on earth in this mortal life. We'll see that purification at a future time. So don't sit where you are thinking you're okay because you haven't seen the judgment. Judgment will come. And so this, he says, mark this then in verse 22. You who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. He offers a correction here in the final verse. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. It's interesting the same correction he made to the charge in stanza two is the same correction he makes to his charge in stanza three. 
offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is that? They must correct their behavior, right? Well, if they correct their motivation in worship, if they offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, their obedience will follow. Look what he says next. So the one who orders, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly. Notice how obedience follows the motivation. To one who orders his way rightly. What will happen? I will show the salvation of God. I think there's something else we need to point out here as well. Does your sacrifice of thanksgiving and your Uh, your obedience, you ordering your way rightly, does that lead to salvation from God? In other words, will that earn you God's salvation? No, that's not what God is saying here. We can look throughout his entire word to see how the ordering really takes place. God delivers his people. We respond in thanksgiving and we walk rightly with God. If God has delivered his people, and you continue to offer God empty, vain, hypocritical worship, what does that say? It reveals that you have not been delivered. If you are willing to walk in that kind of a life, sinful, not worshiping God rightly, it reveals that you have not been delivered. And so no, you will not see salvation. Those of you who will see salvation are are responding in these ways because you know that you have been delivered. And delivered how? By Christ, as we said earlier. And so those of us who have trusted in Christ and are worshiping with the right motivation, a heart of thankfulness, a sacrifice of praise, and who are walking rightly with God, aren't earning salvation, we're evidencing the salvation of God in our own lives. And so now, as we close, I want to offer a few applications for us. One to the unbeliever in the room. To the unbeliever in the room, you have not been delivered by Christ. Does that mean you can be? Of course. If we haven't been, if you haven't been delivered by Christ and you cannot yet approach God in worship at all, Ephesians 2.18 says, for through him, that is Christ, we both have access in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, to the Father. Our worship is Trinitarian and is predicated on a relationship with Christ. No Christ, no coming to the Father. For Christ is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ. So unbeliever in this room this morning, I encourage you, I implore you, trust in Christ. Receive the benefit of salvation Worship him with a heart of thankfulness because of it. Walk rightly, obediently with God. And that will be the evidence of your salvation that God has for you. If you reject this salvation, you will be, the, you will be consumed by the devouring fire in eternity, which is not what anyone wants. But I understand it's hard to know, it's hard to know that now. Because we can be lost in our world today and live, seemingly live, the most wonderful lives. But those seemingly wonderful lives are all but very temporary in the scope of eternity. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Worship Him with hearts of thankfulness and live obediently. And for the believers in this room, as you worship each Sunday, be reminded of the wonderful ways in which God has delivered his people. Yes, chiefly Christ, Christ crucified, buried, risen, but also in the ways that God providentially cares for us at all times. Knowing the great hope of eternity we have that awaits us, worship him with a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Don't just come each Sunday and sing the songs and leave not knowing what you've even sung. Or bow your head in prayers and and think about your week as you do that. Not engage with the prayers. Or as the scriptures are read, and perhaps you think they're too long or something like that. It's the word of God. Engage with the word of God. Follow along with it. See the truth that's being revealed about who God is 
who we are before God, what God has done for us, and how we might respond to those truths. Engage in every aspect of worship with hearts of thanksgiving. And live lives that reflect your worship of God. As we worship God, our lives should be obedient to his word. We don't hate the instruction of God's word. We treasure it. Show that in your lives because of how God has delivered us. And then finally, all of us have great reason to love God with all of our heart, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. I encourage you in all things, in all that you do, whatever you eat or drink, do to the glory of God. That is what our sacrifice of thanksgiving does. That is what our obedient lives do. It glorifies God. Purpose your life for the glorification of God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful. This morning we, we gather and we worship. We hear your word. We see your word. We sing your word. We pray your word. We give to you. Lord, in many Sundays we get to see the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper as we see the gospel in action. Father, I pray that every time we participate in worship, Lord, we have hearts of thanksgiving. As we hear teaching, as we receive admonishment, as we sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, that will always be characterized by thankful hearts. This morning as we sing in response to God's word, Acknowledge him as king and judge, and king and judge who is to come one day. As we acknowledge that in just a moment, in the meantime, I want you to reflect on a few things. One, if you're an unbeliever this morning, there are countless people in this room who would love to talk with you about salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. I too, myself, and Pastor Travis will be forward. We would love to talk to you about that as well. Please don't leave without talking with someone about the gospel. Secondly, perhaps you're a visitor this morning and you're looking for a church home. You're a believer already. You've, you've trusted in Christ. Perhaps you're already baptized. But you want to make Woodlawn your church home, a place where you might join in worship and thankfulness each week. We would delight in having that conversation with you as well. Please see one of us to, to talk about that. And lastly, perhaps you just have something that's weighing on your heart that you want to take to the Lord in prayer and want someone to partner with you in that prayer. Myself and Pastor Travis, anyone in this room would be delighted to pray with you and for you. And so as Pastor Travis and I are down below, and as we sing together, we encourage you to respond to God's word faithfully. Father, we're thankful. And so now as we continue to worship in song, we pray that our worship of you would be characterized by thankfulness.